God's word in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 49, says, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it was already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one house in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Well, you should be very afraid of those who try to scare you. Except don't be afraid of the fact that we're trying to scare you of those who are trying to scare you. You should think all views are equally valid. Except don't think the view is equally valid that says only it is valid. We want every voice represented at the proverbial table. Except we don't want and we'll remove any voice that says they're right. We love the morals and teachings of Jesus except we haven't read them, and that one you just mentioned, I'm not sure I like it. But what I mean is we love love. And Jesus said stuff about love. And so we love Jesus. But wait, what he means by love and we mean by love is different. So maybe we don't love Jesus' teachings either. Well, the key thing, the most important thing to realize is you should have openness towards others. You should have tolerance of all, except those who have a different definition of tolerance, and have humility in what you believe. You know, all of those statements are pointing to the fact that we live in a culture and time where we're encouraged to believe something, but just don't actually believe it's true. Or don't believe it too much. Don't at all say this is right. And then it can be slapped with a veneer of, well, that's humility, and Christ calls us to humility. But that's not what Christ meant by humility. G.K. Chesterton in 1908 wrote about this, and he uses the word modesty to refer to humility. He writes, Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does ex- assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made a man doubtful of himself and his efforts, which might cause him to work harder but the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims which will make him stop working altogether 
In other words, what he's saying is we should. The true humility is being suspicious internally. But on the things that we know are true externally, like God's word, we must hold firmly and humbly to our convictions. Humility in the sense of not being judgmental in our attitude, but yes, being firm in saying that they are true. And all of this is important because the passage that we're going to look at goes against many modern sentiments. In it, Jesus gives fearful warnings. Jesus rebukes people for not living appropriately. He's judgmental. And he basically says, what I'm telling you is the truth. Now that may shock you, might offend our culture, and yet we have to realize if this is true, then it doesn't matter what our peers may think. We have to firmly and humbly, in the right sense of the word, hold on to it. So as we look at Jesus' words this morning, we see three things. First, in verses 49 through 53, we see that Jesus brings conflict. Then in verses 54 to 56, that Jesus rebukes the people. And then lastly, in verses 57 through 59, that Jesus warns of punishment. But first, Jesus is a conflict maker. We see that in verses 49 through 53. Because he begins with these shocking words that I came to bring fire to the earth. He's giving his mission statement. I came to bring fire. Well, what does he mean by this image of fire? Well, if we look earlier in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is telling of the one who is going to come, and he declared his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is a revealing, it's a judging fire. For through it, division will come. It will be revealed who is pure and true and who is just chaff that will be burned up. Jesus regularly divides people into two groups, the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. And here, Jesus is causing division. And he's saying the fire of judgment will reveal what camp you're ultimately in. And Jesus even says, look, it hasn't come yet, but I wish you would come because I have this baptism to go through. Now, before we get that, notice or consider how these people would have heard this. These are Jews, and they're hearing this, and they're probably thinking, well, yes, those wicked Gentiles, God's fire of judgment will come on them. But we're Jews. We're God's people. And yet Jesus is saying, no, the fire of judgment will come upon you if you don't respond appropriately to me don't hope in your jewish identity don't hope in the fact that you're a son of abraham hope and trust in me and they would have been shocked they would have been offended they would have been appalled and yet jesus lovingly still speaks the truth to them and that's why he goes on in verse 50 to tell them that he has a baptism to be baptized with now, this is a second baptism. We've already seen Jesus be baptized by John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3. And that was shocking in and of itself because John the Baptist said to Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? You know, in essence, John is saying, why would a sinless Savior need to come to a baptism that's about repentance of sins? Well, Jesus came to take our punishment and also to give us his righteous life. And so he did everything we should have done. And that's why Jesus does a lot of things that at first don't make 
sense. Why would Jesus go and talk to the teachers when he's the teacher? Why would he celebrate the Passover when he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world? Why would he be baptized when he's the one who makes us clean? Well, because he's living righteously. In other words, he's living the life that we should have. And even the events of Jesus' baptism show that he had no sin. Because when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven, his Father said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Your God opening the heavens depicts his unique, particular care, what's going on, and his words of affirmation are saying, Jesus is my loved one. He is righteous. However, that first baptism was not the baptism Jesus is referring to. Jesus refers to this baptism, the one to come, in Mark 10, 38-39, where Jesus says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so there, Jesus is tying these two images together. The cup he's to drink and the baptism which he is to be baptized with. You know, the cup is an Old Testament metaphor for God's wrath. And when Jesus takes this cup, it's when he's on the cross. And so when he's talking about this baptism, to tie this all together, he's saying, my baptism is my death on the cross. And the most common meaning, not the only meaning, but the most common meaning for the word baptism is to immerse. And Jesus is declaring that he will be immersed, buried under God's judgment and wrath. Before he would come and judge with fire, like he said in verse 49, he himself will first be inundated. He will be immersed under the waters of God's judgment on himself. And as Jesus considers this, it brings him great distress. Jesus fully obeyed and submitted to his Father's will, but that didn't mean it was emotionally easy. The agony we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, the agony we see on the cross, was the culmination of a life of distress of going to the cross. And would we expect anything else? Yes, Jesus went to the cross for the joys that was set before him, but also in distress. And that's what we see even in our life. A soldier prepares to deploy with joy because I get to go serve my country, but with anxiety because to serve my country, it might cost my life. As you prepare for surgery, you go with joy knowing you'll come out on the other side better, but with anxiety because you know you'll come out the other side with recovery. And so we have these mixed emotions as we go to these climatic events. And Jesus had the most climatic event of all of history. And he goes forward with joy and with distress. Because he knows that the cross is going to bring our restoration to life. But it's going to be the alienation of his life from the Father. It will bring us forgiveness. But it will bring him punishment. Because for us to have life, he has to give his own. Thus Jesus looks forward with distress and yet with joy. And he looks forward wanting it to be, he says, accomplished. Now the word for accomplished is the word teleo, or you might know the word telos. It's the end or the goal, what you're hoping to get to. It's the finish line, you might say. And as Jesus sets his sight on the finish line, and then on the cross he's there, he runs through the tape, so to speak. 
We see that because in John 19.30, when Jesus is on the cross with his last breath, he says, it is finished. It comes from this same word, teleo, tetelesai. On the cross, that one word, tetelesai, is it is finished. There he accomplishes what he's wanting to do. His mission is fulfilled. His task accomplished. And then Jesus asks an interesting question. Verse 51, do you think that I came to bring peace on the earth? Now, it's an interesting question. If we were going out telling people about Jesus' mission, one of the things we'd probably say is, he came to bring peace. If we are gathered here, imagine in a couple months when it's cold and you maybe have a sweater or a jacket and we're here on Christmas Eve or the Sunday before, you'd probably expect to hear words even from the Bible, such as glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Or even Old Testament prophecies. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You would not expect that Jesus is thus going to answer this question, did I come to being peace by saying, no. Well, Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace. Yes, that's why you came. And yet Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring division. Well, what in the world is going on? Did Jesus not understand why he came? Have we been misreading the Bible all this time that we're saying it's about peace, but really it's not? Well, no. Jesus is not denying that he brings peace with God. He himself said in John 14 and John 16, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. However, when we turn to the Prince of Peace, it may lead to conflict in our life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Even today, some parts of the world to trust Christ means that you will be kicked out of your family. Allegiance to Christ is seen by others as disloyalty to them. We even see that in the Apostle Paul's life. He was the golden boy, the future great Pharisee who was being raised, who then becomes their number one enemy. And so, yes, coming to Christ means peace with God and with him. However, we have to realize the repercussions it may have with others. And thankfully, I am not aware of anyone in our midst who, due to their faith in Christ, has been alienated from their family in such a hostile way. But it can still blossom and flourish as we seek to live faithfully for Christ. You get together for the holidays, you're having a good time, and then after dinner they pull out a movie and you don't want to watch it. And you don't think your children should watch it. And you get comments like, oh, come on, you prude. Just watch the movie. Why, the, why do you always have to ruin all the fun? Or... You're sitting around the table and they're telling jokes and they're talking about things that you don't want to talk about, you don't think you should talk about. And you say, hey, can we talk about something else? Ah, oh, why are you such a nut job? 
Why, why do you let your religion ruin the fun for all of us here? And you get this constant pressure from family. Really following Christ is not enjoyed in our family. And so Jesus says here, look, I'm going to bring division even amongst families. If there's a house of five, it's three on two and two on three. Even the natural relationships that should be of love are torn apart. Sons against fathers, fathers against sons. And thus, Jesus does give us wonderful, encouraging statements, but he also challenges us. Now, Jesus is not always warm and fuzzy. He's not always our precious moments God, that everything is nice. He warns us that in following him, we should expect division and rejection. Division and rejection that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe still experience today. Yet though this conflict happens with others, we will have peace with God. Peace, because Jesus was immersed under the wrath of God. Thus, what's our first public act? To be baptized. To show that we are one. We have been washed in the waters to show what Jesus did for us. And Jesus can say, he can know for sure that family division will occur because of him. Because Jesus' family will be ripped apart. He will be at enmity with his father and his father with him. He came and brings family division. His father will turn his face away. So this fire, this baptism, this judgment that Jesus talks about all point to the cross. But then Jesus turned and he rebukes the crowd. We see this in verses 54 to 56. The second point, Jesus rebukes them because they're able to discern the physical weather going on around them, but they can't realize what's going on right in front of their face. And he says this because, look, you look to the west, he tells them, and you see a cloud, and maybe as he was speaking, they did see a cloud, and they're going, uh, we know what that means. Jesus, can you, like, speed this talk up? Because when we see that cloud over there, over the Mediterranean Sea, where the water gets evaporated and comes over the land, it's going to rain, and we need to get out of here before it starts raining, because we know what happens when we see that cloud, or do y'all feel that breeze coming from the south? It's going to be hot. I think I read this week, temperature could change 30 degrees in an hour due to the south wind coming up. Whew, we better get out of here. It's going to get hot. And they all really, they can look and see all this. And yet they have seen Jesus heal the sick. Forgive the sinful, cleanse the leper, welcome the outcast, remove demons, even bring the dead back to life. And they're going, well, we don't know what this means. And Jesus says, look, you're hypocrites. You could look at weather and understand, but you see all of this stuff that the Old Testament clearly said would happen when the Messiah comes and you go, I don't know, what does that mean? And Jesus here, by calling them hypocrites, I think is pointing beyond the fact that they don't know what this means, but they don't want to follow what they know it means. You know, perhaps, like the religious leaders, they don't want to follow because they'll have to give up positions of power. Perhaps, like Jesus just warned, they don't want to follow what it means because they know this is going to cause conflict in my family because I know what they think of Jesus. Well, what about you? What 
holds you back or slows you down in fully following Christ. You know, we still have the same pressures. We still have the, if I live faithfully in my neighborhood or in my workplace, I might not get the next promotion. If I say I'm not going to go to that event, my coworkers will make fun of me. They'll never invite me to go out to eat again. I'll be all alone. What do my friends think if I don't laugh at that joke? It's a sad reality that here, thousands of people are listening to Jesus, and yet they aren't going to follow. And week in and week out, we can show up to a religious event. We can hear about Jesus, but then leave and not follow him in our daily lives. And so don't deceive yourself into thinking because you are willing to show up to a weekly service. That means you're honoring God with your life. Are you responding to the evidence and declaration of God's word? Are you just showing up for a weekly event? And Jesus is basically calling them to look at the evidence and respond appropriately. When we lived in Ohio, one time we went walking, we went hiking, and the hiking trail went along a creek, and along the creek it would dry it out. And as we were walking, we saw these rocks. About six of them stacked up, and I said to one of my kids, oh, isn't that amazing how the water rolled down the creek and those rocks just stayed perfectly stacked? I thought, Dad, that's dumb. That couldn't just happen. And that was my point. Of course it couldn't just happen. Six rocks don't just perfectly stack themselves up. Someone had to come and take time and balance and have patience to organize them. It took someone intelligent. Yeah, and if you back up and you think about our universe, it is incredibly complex. If you just look at your body, you could think about any aspect of your body, your hand, your eye, and what takes for it to move. And you realize it just couldn't happen. There had to be something, someone intelligent behind it. Some of you may have heard of Ben Carson. He was a former brain surgeon, very intelligent. He would often ask an audience as he was speaking to them, raise your hand if you know your birthday. So we'll do this little experiment. All right, raise your hand if you know the date of your birthday. Mostly intelligent people are here. All right, well, good. Well, then he would say to them, what had to happen for you to raise your hand? He said, the sound waves had to leave my lips, travel through the air into your external auditory meatus, travel down to your tympanic membrane and set up a vibratory force which traveled across the ossicles of your middle ear to the oval and round windows, generating a vibratory force in the endolymph, which mechanically distorts the microcilia, converting mechanical energy to electrical energy, which traveled across the cochlear nerve to the cochlear nucleus at the pontomedullary junction. From there to the superior olivary nucleus, ascending bilaterally up the brainstem through the lateral lumniscus to the inferior colliculus, and the medical geniculate nucleus, then across the thalamic radiations to the posterior temporal lobes to begin the auditory processing from here to the frontal lobes, coming down the tract of the victor retrieving the memory from the medial hypocampal structures in the mammillary bodies back to the frontal lobes to start the motor response at the Bet cell level, coming that down the cortocospinal tract across the internal capsule into the cerebral peduncle 
descending to the cervicomedullary decusation into the spinal cord gray matter, synapsing and going out to the neuromuscular junction, stimulating the nerve and the muscle so that you could raise your hand. So all of what took you half a second, if that long to do, takes over a minute to explain. And then he would say, and that's the short version. And so if six rocks can't stack on each other, how can such an incredibly complex thing that you hear these audio waves and choo, just happen? Well, it couldn't. The evidence is clearly before us that there's a wise and good creator who made you. And he, because he made you, he wants, he expects, he demands that you follow him. Not to be cruel, not to be a tyrant to lord over you, but because he loves you. Because he wants what's good for you and he's given us rules that will be for his glory and our good, that make our life better. And he didn't send his son to die for you so he could then torment you. He sent his son to die for you because he loves you and he wants you to have what is best. So the evidence is clearly there. Are you living in light of it? Jesus is asking. He's not asking, well, do you just lead a moral life? Do you affirm the correct doctrine and theology that check, yes, I'm firmly within orthodoxy? Those are both good things. But he's asking, does our whole being love God? Have we forsaken everything, taken up our cross, and followed him? Have we submitted our lives to him no matter the cost, even as he just warned? the cost of losing family and friends. Well, Jesus knew that many in the crowd that day, as he spoke to the thousands, had not. And thus Jesus warns that not only have they failed to understand who was in front of them, they failed to understand and prepare for the coming judgment. And we see that in the last three verses. Jesus warns of punishment. In verse 57, he says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, you're intelligent people, think it out. You know, a lot of times people will claim, well, being a Christian means you just have faith. You know, you no longer live with facts and reason, you just live off belief. Well, the Bible never tells us to act that way. We're never told to just no longer look at the evidence, just believe. Over and over, we're told things like Jesus just said, think it out. Consider, use your brain. Let the evidence lead you to the faith. God provides us good and solid reasons for why we should respond to him in his words. And then Jesus gives an illustration to drive home this point. He tells of their debtor's prison, of a person who owes money. And they know if they owe money and they're past due, then they could have a local person take them to the magistrate. And if they're in debt then the magistrate would give them to the officer of the debtor's prison. And the officer of the debtor's prison would throw them in, and they wouldn't get out until they paid the very last coin. If you look at your notes in some of the Bibles, it makes clear that this is even less of a value than a penny that we have today. We might say you've got to pay everything down to the last drop. Every little thing. And Jesus' story implies something. And that is we have a massive debt before God. You know, this debt is serious, Jesus is warning. And we better take care of it before we're at the judge. 
as he explains it in the story, or it's too late. Here earlier, Joseph read for us from Matthew 18, and in that story, Jesus is telling of this debt that this man owed. He owed 10,000 talents. What's a talent? Well, a talent was 20 years of work, 20 years wage. So you're quick with your math, I know. 20 times 10,000, this man owed 200,000 years of work. Needless to say, retirement at 65 is looking rather bleak right now. And the king calls in the debt. And he comes in and the man throws himself down. And that's right, it's what he should do. He, I, I need mercy. But then the man does something utterly ridiculous. I don't know if you noticed it as Joseph read. Because then he says, if you just give me enough time, I'll pay you back. That's ridiculous. He owes 200,000 years. He doesn't have enough time. He has not fully understood the depth of his debt. And sadly, that's what many people do today. Oh, I have a debt before God. Well, I better start going to church. I better start praying and reading my Bible once in a while. I better start being pious. And yet the whole time it's joyless. It's burdensome. They don't want to be in church. And if they're honest, they'd rather be anywhere. Hunting, shopping, golfing, relaxing, anywhere. But pff, I have this debt, and i got to pay this debt off. It's this pay-it-back mentality. And it shows we have not come to grips with how much of debt we have due to our sin. You know, the king did have compassion on him, though. And he forgave him. He said, I will forgive your debt. You know, God is compassionate. He removes our debt not by having us pay for it ourselves. Earlier I read Colossians 2, and I'll read it again for it says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, our debts, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We were dead. Like the servant in the story Jesus tells in Matthew 18, we did not have enough resources, we don't have enough time to ever make a dent on the debt we owe before God. And so what does God do? He cancels, Paul tells us, our debt. The word cancels refers not only to forgetting, but actually destroying the IOU note. Some of you have had the privilege of finishing paying off your house. And a lot of times when people do, they take the note from the bank and they light it on fire. And then they toss it in the air as it finishes burning. Why? Because it's like no one can ever pull out that document that says we owed. It's been destroyed. That's what Jesus did. On the cross, he took your debt and it was nailed. And it was destroyed so no one can go back and find an old document and go, well, look, he still owes. It is completely taken away. It wasn't just magically removed. Its cost was absorbed by Jesus because he took the fire in the baptism that he talked about in the judgment on the cross. There's no other means for us removing the debt we have before God. So have you realized the debt 
your sin has given you before God. Just imagine for a second, someone, a friend, loans you $200. And you're supposed to pay them back by Wednesday. And Wednesday, you realize you don't have the money. And you know you have to see them. We would be ashamed. We would be nervous of going before them. We owe God something that's way more than $200. Well, what should we do? Well, like the servant did at first, we should throw ourselves at God's feet, beg Him for mercy. But then unlike the servant, we don't go, but just give me more time. Just a few more. If I go a few more Sundays, I'll, I'll get more brownie points on this side, and then God, you'll have to forgive me. No, we realize that the complete and full payment was made through His Son, Jesus. That we say, we'll follow you no matter what the cost, because you're worth it. You took my debt on yourself. And that's better than anything, even the temporal loss of even friends and family. And so this morning, Jesus is showing us that there's going to be pressure. There's going to be costly choices due to following Him. But even better, you get to know Him, your Creator, your King, that you get to have your debt taken and you're moved from an outcast to His Son in whom He delights. I have a friend who served as a missionary in India. And while he was there, he learned of this man named Kartar Singh. And Kartar, he recounts, lived in the late 1800s and he was the son, the only son of a wealthy landlord in India. Carter was raised with all of the family's hopes centered on him. And though they were Sikhs by religion, they, religion, they sent him to get a secular education. As Qatar grew up, he more and more became disillusioned with the secular education and his Sikh religion and the claims of Christ were presented to him. After he studied, as he hungered and thirst for what was true, he came to the conviction that Jesus Christ was true. And he committed his life to following Christ. But when he did this, it angered his family. And they tried everything they could do to get him to stop following Christ. As in their culture, he already had a prearranged marriage. And they tried to have the girl come and seduce him, try to get her to lure him away. And though he loved her and cared for her, he told her, I cannot choose you over Christ. Finally, his father flat out told him, that he could not be his son and still follow Jesus. He said, Qatar, you have disgraced the Sikh religion in your family. Forget this nonsense. Forget about your Jesus Christ and return to the religion of your forefathers or you are no longer my son. Qatar responded, Father, I love you and mother and I deeply appreciate all you have done for me. It pains me to hurt you, but I cannot give up my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. I will serve him until the day of my death. At that, Qatar was sent out of the house and disinherited. He knew that in following Jesus, he could stand and he did lose everything temporal. When his father kicked him out of the house and disowned him, he literally took even the clothes off his back and sent him out naked into the night. As Qatar laid his clothes at his father's feet, he said to his father, Father, the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
has covered all my nakedness and my sin. He could see past what was temporal to what was eternal, what really mattered. And may God give us that same faith that realizes the joy and though also maybe the cost of following him. Let's pray. O Lord, there is great joy in knowing you. And yet at the same time, we know the cost can be great. Lord, would you give us such faithfulness as it can be harder and harder to live in this world? May we be strengthened by your spirit. May we be encouraged by the fellowship of the saints to go out and be salt and light in this world. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.